0: I'm very pleased to be with you here. I uh, stand up for a little while, but I can't stand up for very long, because my new knee, which is two years old, doesn't allow me to stand for too long. But uh, I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm really most grateful for this invitation, because it delights me to know that Teilhard de Chardin is of interest to people in the Christian meditation movement, because so far, that has not been the case. And I certainly have lectured about in many places of the world, from South Africa to China and Australia, uh, and sometimes in Britain, but not very often in Britain. I speak far more often in the States than in the United, than in the united Kingdom, if it remains united. Uh, I, I, uh, had I known what the outcome of the referendum would be, I would actually have given a different day on unity, collaboration, and the way forward in creating a new Earth community in relation to our new Earth consciousness. We're all inspired by the beauty, the grandeur, the greatness, and the splendor of the universe, but we are, you know, the globe is one, and the species is one. There's not, there are not two or three human species, there's only one. And how do we make an effort to come together? Why do we use so much ingenuity to be so much apart and at each other's throats and so on? Um, may I ask you, before I come to my theme, may I ask you who is familiar with Teya at all? Good. Is there anyone who knows nothing about Tearashana at the back? Right. I just want to see how to pitch it. I've got loads of material, and I can't uh, give it all, because there's not enough time. But what I would like to point out, before I start properly, I've given you all these hands-outs, because there's more material than I can actually cover in not only an hour, but in a day. Uh, And therefore, I have prepared material to give you a guideline that you can afterwards study some of the ideas that I mentioned here. So we speak, the day is particularly focused on the divine milieu. And what I want to uh, achieve, if I can, is to give you the context of the milieu. What is it about? And how did it come into being? and, And what is its meaning? And how can we actually be inspired by it in terms of meditation and prayer? That's the main aim of the day. And I'll try and focus on that. But in order to convey this, I also need to explain a wider context, which is quite complex. And it would be, you know, you would have to do a seminar for a week to go through all the material. This is on these pages. But what I have done, I've given you a very brief outline of his life and writing. And I shall say something about this in a minute. And I've given you uh, a handout uh, also about teya and science, and about evolution. So let us start very briefly with this. I don't know whether everybody can hear me. If I sit down, you think that'd be OK? I'll sit down in a minute. But what I wanted to point out, his life, what is very important is, and what many people don't see is, how Teilhard's life experience and his thought and his writings are totally correlated, how his experience really is reflected in his writings, and how you can't understand his writings without knowing something about his context and experience. That's a very, very important point. Not everybody understands that. So to take the writings in isolation, you often miss very, very important clues. And also, the way the writings have been published has not been very helpful, because they have not been published in chronological order, and you can get very confused. Now, Teilhard didn't write many books. He wrote basically three books. One is The Human Phenomenon, first The Divine Milieu, where we start, then The Human Phenomenon, and later on in Paris, the, the human place, man's place in nature. But all the other writings were essays, largely written, you know, not in a library, not at university, not preparing lectures, but on the boat traveling between China and France or America, or at a little rest place, or in the middle of the trench warfare. That's how he started. So, you know, this is a very unusual context in writing and this is very very important that the two formative experiences of his life for his thought were the first world war and i you know that's a very very important experience and really the mystical vision comes out of the trenches this is an extraordinary evolution if you like and that was formative for him you know his mystical experience his vision of christ the presence of god that really comes to an enormous cosmic vision in the First World War. And then, equally important, or a kind of uh, further development of this, is the experience of China and of Asia. So, the experience of the First World War and the experience of China are, if you like, the two pillars, really, that that undergird his whole work. he began writing in the First World War, and he wrote these essays. He began writing before the main battle at Verdun in 1916, you see. And this is very... I will quote one or two things of that later. So that's where his, his science and his religious vocation, they come together. He was drawn to the earth. He was drawn to fossils, stones, bones, through the influence of his father, and he was very deeply interested, and read the Christian mystics very intensively, and that came from his very devout mother. So those two parents formed him very deeply. So he, had, he had, was sent to a Jesuit boarding school from the age of 11. And he felt by the age of 17, 18, he wanted to become a Jesuit, which his father wasn't really very keen on, You know, and tried to stop him doing this. So he kept him. at for years, it may do further mass to do to do literature and so on before becoming a Jesuit. Now he became a Jesuit and he did his theological and philosophical studies with the Jesuits in the Channel Islands and in Britain and Hastings because the anti-clerical um, policies of the French government threw the Jesuits out. They wanted to get rid of the Jesuits so they took Refuge in the Channel Islands and in Hastings, they had their um, their study houses there. And he was ordained in uh, 1911 as a priest in Hastings. Now he was before that, 1911. Uh, the The experience of Jersey was very influential for him because he did a lot of fossil hunting there. He did fossil hunting in in um, in the um, lives round about De Hastings and there are elements of his, what he collected which you can still find in the Hastings Museum so that's very very interesting and then he was sent as part of his training he was sent to teach physics and chemistry from 1905 to 1908 in Egypt, in a Jesuit college in Egypt where he had largely Muslim boys as his students, his pupils and he fell in love with the desert the desert. He used to go fossil hunting in the desert. And he speaks about these wide open spaces, the ocean, the, the dunes, the sky. And this is also in Hastings, living by the seaside. You know, the sea, the infinity, the universal that he could see. So that really inspired him and motivated him. And it was in Hastings, first of all, that he discovered evolution, which again would require a whole talk and looking at what evolution meant to him because suddenly from a very kind of traditional Christian doctrinal way of you know seeing Christ seeing Jesus seeing God seeing the church, suddenly everything changed. it was an absolute revolution you know because he suddenly realized the entire earth was alive. everything was just pulsating this throughout the universe the fire of the divine the presence of the divine it absolutely exhilarated him you see and suddenly the world was different the world was going somewhere and this is really why he's so interesting because he feels that you know to keep science and religion apart we are looking at the world in little boxes and in a way we must make the connection everything is interconnected and so you know he he comes to this vision that cosmic life, the life of evolutionary becoming through the millions of years to our presence today, it the evolution is not finished, it goes on in terms of consciousness, of further becoming, of further spiritualization, if you like. You know, So he sees a much greater rhythm. He sees something in such great uh, dimensions that really it's overwhelming if you give it Full thought. So that's what I'm trying to get across to you. So this comes across in the essays. He starts writing. Even the war didn't disconcert him. And you know, his his fellow priests they got disturbed by this. This man is not taking evil seriously. And how can he see the good in all this? You know. And he kept trying to see things. You know, going still forward and upward, even in the worst of times. So he starts writing. The first essay is called Cosmic Life. That's what he's really inspired by. And it begins with a motto that says, there is communion with God. That's the traditional upward, you know, you you leave the world, you just go for the divine, for the abstract, for the spirit. And then there's communion with the world. And that's you know the people who are activists, who go into politics, who are reformers. And then he says there is communion with God through the world. There is a diagonal where you try and integrate. The divine is present in all the turmoil of the world. The spirit is among us. If only we could pay attention and, and be still enough, or be focused enough, or be reflective enough. And this is where it feel science is not going far enough. we are looking all the time more and more at the outside, even when we, we, we can study our own interiors, or we can study micro, microbes and microwaves and, you know, and cells and whatever. Um, but it's still not asking. It, it can explain how things work, but it doesn't explain to us why they are there and how they Why did they come into existence? You know, it explains how they come in, how they developed, but it doesn't explain why they are there. In other words, what is the meaning and purpose of all this? What is the meaning and purpose of human life? Is there anything that we do of any permanent value? Will anything that we love survive or continue in some attenuate a different transformative way of existence you see these are the kinds of questions he had and he kept thinking and saying that you have to look you have to see the interior dimension not in spatial terms but in how should i say in in spiritual transformative terms you know there is a deeper deeper meaning a deeper existence say we can't see the spirit, we can't touch the spirit, it's not the material, it's it's a spiritual not as totally separate and the opposite of the material, but in and through the material it it emerges. It's the emergence, the emergence of life, the emergence of new insight, the emergence of human beings, the emergence of culture, the emergence of thought, the emergence of new goals and vision. So that's what I'm trying to explain in here, and um, if you turn around this, you can study, uh, f- you know, detailed more things later on. If you turn around the first page, there is a very nice diagram reproduced, which actually comes from a Japanese teacher. This was given to me by one of my Japanese students, believe it or not, who was studying with, with us in Leeds, not at the University of Bristol, but University of Leeds, where I used to be long ago. So what shows this is how Teya sees the evolutionary drive for the evolutionary upward ascent, the spiritual ascent, which is also uh, a further development and transformation of the whole of existence including the whole of human species and human being so what we start you know in the past in the far away past how individuals develop into group uh, in groups and how the simple beginning develops into more complex forms till always uses this kind of this is not a this is not a diagram of it, but it's adapt, it's an adaptation of the ideas he has how what he calls complexity consciousness comes about. I mean, in in short, that means the more material items get complexified, the more they get centrated, and the more material arrangement there is internally, the more complex they get, and the more complex they get, the more they have a center. And the more of a center they have, the more you have the rise of consciousness, so you have a kind of rudimentary consciousness among the animals and plants, you know. But you have a much more developed self-reflective consciousness in human beings. So there we are in a different mode of being. So he really talks about this rise of consciousness. So he sees, you know, the development of arises and converges to higher and higher level and means it comes to more unification. And he sees this unification in the conscious levels of the uh, the universe being driven or being animated by love energy that's on the right. And how this is a movement that goes from the past to the present to the future. And he sees it as a rise, which has ultimately, maybe in millions of years, a peak point, a summit, which he calls Omega, the Greek word for the, from the end, the Greek letter from the end of the alphabet, the Omega being the summit, but it's also uh, a very ancient Christian symbol. Omega is used for Christ, and Thea speaks about Christ Omega, the point that ultimately is the culmination of all developments in God. Um, I just, if you now go to the, um, what's the next page? The next page is the last one, the third one. I've given you a handout on science. If you want to pursue anything, I have given more uh, of the specialist kind of words that Teya uses, because some of his language is quite difficult, and how it is shaped and influenced by geology, paleontology, and biology. Now, what is most important? Uh, you can perhaps read this in the lunchtime, or if you have any questions, come back. What I want to really point out to you is the diagram on the back of this page that has the handout on science, because this is very exciting. The new cosmic story as we understand it today, and then I stop and go to my divine milieu. So here you have the new cosmic story. The story, it's about the epic of evolution, and Thomas Berry, who was very much influenced by Teilhard, he uses this word story. We have to have a new story to explain to ourselves, to make sense of our position in the universe, and of where are we going, and what is the sense of the human community, of the human species. Now, this is done by a a very well-known American theologian, John F. Howard, who writes a lot on religion and science. And this is in his books. This is uh, Science and Faith. But he uses it all the time also in his other books. Uh, What he shows here, um, paradigmatically, he tries to show for us to understand this 13 and a half billion years is really impossible. You can't really work it out. And scientists, you know, they, will, they work at one particular aspect. We are not all experts and scientists. So what John have done has done is, if you represented the whole great movement of evolution as a library, he represents here 30 volumes of a library, each of which has, each volume has 450 pages, And each page represents one million years. I mean, it's a very imaginative way of It's very good to explain this to to school children, really. So what happens? In the first volume, the Big Bang occurs. And then for a long time, nothing occurs. Lifeless and mindless matter slowly, slowly, slowly unfolds. So the Earth, the story of our planet Earth, only begins in volume 21. In volume 21. And then, the, really, the life and everything coming out, the plants, the animals, that appears in volume 29, 30. I mean, as far as we know, we are at the end of the evolution. I mean, there are probably other volumes to come. But the point is that the modern human being, as we recognize ourselves, doesn't appear until the last page, page 450 of volume 30. <laughs> so. <laughs> You, I mean, it's a very impressive way of thinking. Well, we are not really very, uh, very much in advance. <laughs> we are at a very, very late stage in one sense, or we are at a very new stage. We are so young, as a, evolutionary speaking, speaking, we are so young as a species. We are not very old. We think we are so clever. We have got several thousand years of culture. We know all the different kind of the languages that have developed, the cultures, the the different kinds of modes of living and so on. But in spite of this richness, there is really, this has happened, evolutionarily speaking, in a relatively short time. And what we could expect is that this evolution process might go on for a very, very long time if we don't self destruct ourselves. So, this is a, a picture I want you to go away with. If you have any questions about this, do ask me later. Now, let me sit down and uh, come to the divine milieu. Now, is it difficult for the people at the back to see me? You, it's very difficult to see me. I try, I try that can, but it's not, not so easy. Now, the divine milieu, the problem is that the publication of Teya's works leaves much to be desired. I won't talk about this now, but in England, no bookshelf has any new prints of these books. They came out in the 60s, from the mid-'50s to the 60s. You can only find these books, in, if you're lucky, in second-hand bookshops. I mean, in America, they're in print, in the USA. But not in, see here, I've got a, uh, the Fontana paperback, which is from the 19, whenever it is. I can't even remember. It's so old. So it's, you know, it, it's 19, um, 1960. First issue, 1964. Then the 11th Suppression, 1973. That's this book. You see, it's a same. This is an interesting book, The Hymn of the Universe, which some people may know. The Hymn of the Universe is not a a title that Teilhard ever created. It's a book that was put together by the committee that decided how to put his articles together, his essays together. And therefore, it's very unsatisfactory, because it contains some things, but not other things. In other words, the divine milieu is a separate book. That's a book Teilhard wrote, and I'll explain in a minute why he wrote this. But what I want you to know is that you have to look, really, if I can find my list now, but if I can't, I can, well, I don't, it doesn't matter. Um, in the Hymn of the Universe, an important text in here. Um, first of all, he wrote in the First World War in 1917, he wrote a very fine. He wrote the mystical milieu. He uses the word mystical milieu before he uses the word divine milieu. And then he also wrote before that in cosmic life. He already speaks about this animated uh, universe, the cosmic sense. And after that, after the um, uh, mes- what is it now? Um, after the mystic, li- the mystic, the mystical milieu which is, was written in 1917 in the First World War. There's an excellent book, which I have actually written. I have indicated this on the back of the, uh, where you have got the information, The Mystical Milieu by Kathleen Duffy, who is an American physics professor and a religious sister. She wrote this book, Tejas Mysticism, Seeing the Inner Face of Evolution. That's an excellent book, and she shows how Tejas used and was influenced by the science of his time in developing his ideas about the mystical milieu. But she also shows how much his ideas are congenial to our contemporary scientific knowledge, which has far advanced beyond Teyas' time. So it's a very, very interesting book to read. So you go from mystical milieu, to eventually the divine milieu. And in between, so let me give you some passages. And these passages you will find. There is a a book from which I will quote more. The spiritual writings in selection are edited in this volume. I edited these about 20 years ago in the Orbis uh, Spiritual Master Series. This is an American publisher, but you can get it in Britain. And it starts, you see, I, just to give you an idea. This book has a chapter on the heart of Teilhard spirituality. I could, you see, I could just lecture on that. Then I come to the first section, about which I will talk in a moment, discovering the divine in the, in blaze, in the depths of blazing matter. That's an expression of Teilhard. Then the second section is living in the divine milieu, and the third section is in Christ in all things, and then the fourth section is the awakening and growth of the spirit in the world. And that's what I would like to convey also. So what actually happened is that Teya he wrote Cosmic Life, and uh, from Cosmic Life he goes to the Mystical Life. Then what happens is next is that in 19... 19- 19, after the uh, end of the First World War, he went back to Jersey, where he had been a student in a Jesuit house. And he wrote a really rhapsodic um, essay called The Spiritual Power of Matter. Not the spiritual power of the spirit, but the spiritual power of matter. And it finishes with a rhapsodic, really rhapsodic, hymn to matter. And I will quote in a moment from that. So that's from 1917 to 1919 to 1923, he writes The mass on the World, which some of you will know. When he's in China on big digs to collect fossils for the Paris Museum of Natural History, and he couldn't say mass. He was with a number of uh, colleagues and with some Chinese coolies helping him to do the digging. in the morning, at sunrise, he would come out of the tent and just pray this prayer of praise, this cosmic liturgy, which he later wrote down. And that is the mass on the world, where all the travels of the world, all our labor, and all our achievements are offered up to God. Our, what we do and what is done to us, our labors, our pain, our suffering. our Uh, enrichments everything and it's it's a wonderful text I mean some of you will know this so that's a mess in the world and then that's 1923 then in 19, and that's China and in 1927 he writes the uh, divine milieu between November 1926 to March 1927 it's done in about six months and that's also written in China which is very interesting and why is this written in China, this book? That is because he was at the deepest crisis of faith in his life. Because after the war, he, wanted, he was appointed as lecturer in geology at the Institut Catholique, the Catholic University in Paris. And he now had a public. He had students. And he wanted to tell them of what he had seen, what he, how he understood evolution, and how everything was so different. And the religious authorities would not allow him to speak so clearly and openly about evolution. This was not acceptable to the church, you see. This was not acceptable. So by 1923, 22, 23, he had an invitation to go to China because there was another Jesuit at a Jesuit institute in Tianjin. Um, teaching students, and they wanted Teilhard to come and teach students, and this Jesuit, Per Lisson, also Frenchman, who wanted him to come with him, to come expeditions to Mongolia, and to the Gobi Desert, and to all these places where you could find fossils. So Teilhard did go, and uh, he was going to be there for six months. He stayed well over a year. And that is, But but before he, though that's in 1923 when he goes first and when he writes a mess on the world. But then because he comes back to Paris and they take his license for teaching away, he's not allowed to lecture. So he has only got the possibility of going back to China and doing geological, paleontological work, and that's what he does. But he is in such a crisis and his friends and people advised him, why don't you leave the Jesuits or so you could leave the church, but, you know, just be a free scientist and so on. And he didn't want to do this because of his to his order. So, he had thinking about the divine milieu. He speaks about the divine milieu also in the mystical milieu and in the, in the mess of the world particularly. So, he wanted to really put down his own spiritual practice. And this book, is a book that comes out of Teilhard's own spiritual practice. He's trying to make sense of how to work out how can he accept and how he can transform this extraordinary experience of his, you know, the positive one, the evolutionary vision, and the rebuke he has had from the religious authorities, largely from his own general and the Jesuits. The Jesuits are even more. Uh, comfortable there than the church as a whole. But the point is that this is a book of spiritual practice, how to deal with how to establish yourself in the divine milieu, how to live in the divine milieu by becoming divinized. Now, he uses an expression which comes really out of orthodox Christianity. It's not usually used much in Western Christianity. I mean, Western Christianity is much more focused on moral and ethical transformation than on the divinization. But Teya, who knew the patristics quite well, he was fascinated by this idea, this process of divinization as a process of transformation of our deeper spiritual development. And he then wants to work out. How do I establish myself in the divine milieu? Through the divinization of my activities and the divinization of my passivities. That's basically this book. What we do and what is done to us and how we respond, or how do we use it as material, if you like, as food for our own self-transformation on the way to the divine. Right? because he sees in everything that happens to us, he sees what he calls the two hands of God, that shape us, that, that draw us forward or pull us forward, uh, that sometimes help, that help us when we are down and, and really very, very uh, much in pain and when we don't understand. All those things are involved in this process of divinization The divinization, what he calls, of our passivities. I say more about this later. Now, let me just read you some text to what I have now said, okay? Let us first of all look here at the. Now, this is also connected to something what I will speak later on, namely the figure of Christ, because I need my glasses, sorry. Where's my bag? Oh, oh yeah, thank you. <laughs> this is a bit difficult without glasses. Haven't got glasses. Are they not lying here? What was that? Oh, no, I can't. No, 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 no. Oh, this is very bizarre. This is very bizarre. I must have left them in my bag. Oh, I must. In my well, this is very strange. Well, they're not there. Oh, no, I've got them. I've got them. I've got one of these absolutely awful, very capacious handbags, and you get so much in it that I can never find what I need. I apologize. I apologize. I apologize. I uh, apologize. We better do this so that I can actually properly read. This is about Christ in matter. This is, this is a wonderful, wonderful um, story. And this is written in, before the Battle of Duamont in October 1916. And what this is about is that uh, he calls these three stories in the manner of Benson. Now Benson was the son of a former Archbishop of Canterbury called Benson and he became a Catholic, and he then wrote a lot of kind of mystical stories, which influenced Teilhard quite a bit. So he tries to imitate this writer, and he calls this Christ in the world of matter, and he links it to a picture of Christ, and he links it to going into a church, and he sees this picture of Christ, the Sacred Heart, in fact, the monstrance and the pigs. I won't go into this now, but, Uh, I mean, not in the full story. This particular essay is thought by some to be really the clue to Teilhard's mysticism, because he describes a friend who goes into the church, but it is really autobiographical. It's him going into the church uh, after one of his friends has been buried in Verdun, after one of the worst battles. Not the battle at the Somme, but at Verdun. And he says, Do you want to know how the universe, in all its power and multiplicity, came to assume for me the lineaments of the face of Christ? He sees the face of Christ in the universe. Now, he describes this picture, and it's just an ordinary, you know, quite sentimental picture, probably. He talks about this in other passages uh, of, you know, the traditional um, depiction of the Sacred Heart. Christ's heart in his breast, and then the flames going outwards. So it's just a simple picture. Now he prays in front of this picture and kneels down, and suddenly something happens. And he describes this in great detail, because suddenly the frame just disappears, the picture, the image disappears, and it becomes universal. It's almost like the vision of Krishna. You know, it's just, it's the whole universe suddenly. And he describes this, you see. He says, meanwhile, my gaze had come to rest without conscious intention on a picture representing Christ offering his heart. It was then, when I was keenly pondering over the things which I haven't all read out, that my vision began. To tell the truth, I cannot say at what precise moment it began, for it had already reached a certain degree of intensity when I became conscious of it. The fact remains that as I allowed my gaze to wander over the figure's outlines, I suddenly became aware that these outlines were melting away. They were dissolving, but in a special manner, hard to describe. When I tried to hold in my gaze the outline of the figure of Christ, it seemed to me to be clearly defined. But then, at once, these contours and the folds of Christ's garment, the lustre of his hair, the bloom of his flesh, all seemed to merge, as it were, into the rest of the picture. It was as though the planes which marked off the figure of Christ from the world surrounding it were melting into a single vibrant surface whereupon all demarcations vanished. And then he suddenly, I mean, these are very long passages, we can't read them all out, suddenly he puts in italics The universe, the entire universe, was vibrant. Yet when I directed my gaze to particular objects, I found them still as clearly defined as ever. But all this moment, every movement seemed to emanate from Christ, and above all, from his heart. I noticed, I've forgotten to tell you about Christ's garments. They had the luminosity, that luminosity we read about in the accounts of the Transfiguration. But what struck me most of all was that the fact that no weaver's hand had fashioned them. No coarsely spun threads composed their weft. Rather, it was matter, a bloom of matter. This is blazing matter, matter, which had spontaneously woven a marvelous stuff out of the inmost depths of its substance. And it seems as though I could see the stitches running on and on indefinitely, harmoniously blending together into a natural design which profoundly affected them in their own nature. Now, this goes on for a very long time. And then he goes, you know, the vision rises more and more, and becomes very universal, cosmic, but then, of course, it recedes, and he sees again Christ's eyes, his pupils. They had become abysses of fiery, fascinating life. Suddenly I beheld rising up from the depths of those same eyes what seemed like a cloud, blurring and blending all that variety I've been describing to you. Little by little, an extraordinary expression of great intensity spread over the diverse shades of meaning which the divine eyes revealed. I stood dumbfounded for this final expression was indecipherable. I simply could not tell whether it denoted an indescribable agony or a superabundance of triumphant joy. I only know that since that moment, I thought I caught a glimpse of it once again. Where does he catch it? Once again, in the glance of a dying soldier. Because you see, he was ordained. He could have been chaplain in the forces, but he wanted to be an ordinary uh, soldier. And he was not allowed to be a combatant, because he was a priest. So he became a stretcher bearer, which was the lowest lowest role you could have in the army. And he was in a very, very important assault unit, which consisted of Moroccans, Tunisians, and French people who lived in the French Empire. You know, and so you had this extraordinary mixture of human beings. And he constantly was ferrying the, the the wounded back from the, you know, from the field from to the to some uh, medical unit for some help, or he was assisting men to die. But what is so extraordinary he himself, during the four and a half years that he served from the beginning to the end of the First World War in the army, in the war, never had as much as one single shell wound, which is really quite extraordinary when you just think of the Battle of the Somme and think of all these extraordinary fights and the destruction and the killing. How did he survive? And Muslims. The soldiers they recognized this and they used a Sufi expression from North Africa to describe him. At the time, this is not uh, later, they called him Sufi um, Sidi Marabu. Sidi Marabu. Marabu is a man, is a person entirely under the baraka, under the grace of God, like under a huge umbrella that covers you against all odds. Nothing will happen to you. You are safe. You are sound. You are supported. You are carried. And this is what they saw in their Monsieur Teyar. And they would prepare his you know, simple kind of uh, table and everything to say mass, whether they were Christians or not. They were Muslims, you see. So he had this very strong relationship. And I've never been able to discover whether this was because of his love of Egypt that he access- that he expressed a wish to be with North African or why he finished up in a North African regiment. But I tell you this because it's so very powerful and empowering. You know, and for him this I mean both the regiment both his unit and he himself got uh, several distinctions, were awarded several distinctions after the war. But it is in this context, you see, when the when there was a lull in the fire of the trenches, they would sometimes be Uh, living, they they would be quartered in farms that had been taken over by the army or whatever. And this man starts writing. Can you imagine? He gets into the army early in 1916, January, then he starts thinking about all these things he had thought about as a student in theology, his experiences, uh, his science, because he had gone to Paris to start um, studying in the sciences from 1912 to 1914, before he was called up. And then he starts writing, and he exchanged letters with his cousin Marguerite, all about these, you know, what what moves him, what occupies him, what is it that he sees. And his first essay in 1916 is, he wants to set down his vision, as an intellectual testament because he might not survive. He's very aware he might be killed any day. He might just not survive. So he's very concerned to leave something behind, to tell people what he's seen. And of course, he survives, and he survives for many years. So this is uh, Christ in Matter. Now, the next one, I have lost my pieces now. Wait a minute. Christ in the world of matter, we have done that. Now, uh, the next one is. 1919, the hymn to matter. I mentioned this. How are we doing? For time? Oh, it's okay. Um, the hymn to matter, where he writes, this is very interesting. Um, he writes about the spiritual power of matter, which is too long to read to you. But then he describes again someone else, like you know Elijah in the chariot, coming along and singing this wonderful rhapsodic hymn about, you know, matter, matter that. Blessed be you, harsh matter, barren soil, stubborn rock, you who yield only to violence, you who force us to work if we would eat. Blessed be you, violent sea, untamed passion. You, unless we fetter you, will devour us. Blessed be you, universal matter, immeasurable time, boundless ether, travel abyss, and so on and so forth. But then it comes. I acclaim you, I acclaim matter as the divine milieu. There you have the word. The divine milieu charged with creative power. As the ocean stirred up by the spirit, as the clay, like he found by Ron Hastings, the clay molded and infused with the life by the incarnate Word. So he brings it all together. You know, matter is really... Uh, the presence, the epiphany of the divine. And it's interesting. I've got a message somewhere from Thomas Merton. When you read The Divine Milieu, which he read quite late, I think. Have I got this somewhere? Well, I will find it. If I don't find it now, i find it at lunchtime. Um, I've got too many, as you can see, I've got too many things here lying around. Um, No, can't find it. It's always difficult. Well, I want to, yes, I've read about this. Um, anyway, he speaks, uh, Thomas Merton, I'll find the quotation later. He speaks about, the, he describes um, the divine milieu. presents the universe as a diaphony. The universe is a diaphony. The created world of which we are part is a diaphanie. That is to say, diaphanine means, in Greek, to shine through. There is uh, something that emerges, a presence, some development, some process, some life, something that is so deeply mysterious that we can never understand it, even however clever we are. So it is very important to see this, to, to acknowledge this. And uh, that is uh, to do with the divine in the depths of matter. Now, Teilhard, in writing about discovering the divine in the, di- in the depths of math- matter, as he encouraged us to do, he writes, to understand the world, knowledge is not enough. You must see it, touch it, live in its presence, and drink the vital heat of existence in the very heart of reality. That's what he says. In other words, the senses, our human senses, our five senses that touch the hearing, the seeing, is, are very important. And what he stresses more than anything else is a different and new way of seeing. Namely, not just seeing with our eyes, but seeing, and you have that in many religious traditions, seeing with the inward eye. Seeing more deeply, seeing inwardly, to have, to have an integral vision that is much more connecting all experiences and reality with each other. So it's seeing. He talks about, later on he creates this word, the no-sphere, which is the sphere he thinks that, with the coming of the human species, with the creation of the, human, the evolution of the human being, a new layer has been added to our planet. You know, we have uh, the geosphere, we have the atmosphere, we have the, we have the biosphere, the atmosphere, the stratosphere. Now, he says we also have the noosphere surrounding the planet, by which he means, he thinks very spherically, he means the sphere of the nous, which is the word for the mind in Greek, not, the, not reason as a rational kind of construct, a rational uh, Function, but he means by "news" for the Greeks meant the integral, inner, deeper vision. You know, you understand in a way that is much more um, comprehensive and richer than we normally use the word "understanding." So he says, you know, seeing, seeing in a new way. And why is he seeing in a new way? Because he he feels that. Really, the divine is unfolding itself, showing itself in ways that are mysterious and new. But, of course, he sees this all the way up to the incarnation of God in the world. But he sees it also, it starts at the very bottom, if you like. It starts in small elements. So what he speaks, after he really was so excited by discovering what evolution meant and what it meant for him, from 1911 onwards, he speaks about the Christic element. He sees the Christic element sown all over the world, sown all through the cosmos. And he sees, you see, that builds up what he calls the cosmic body of Christ. And he writes so many passages about it that uh, some theologian, an Australian theologian actually, has suggested, has collected all these passages, um, a man called James Lyon. And he looks at the cosmic nature of Christ in Teilhard de Shada, but also in Origin. Origin is an ancient patristic Father, and he already thought of this cosmic, the cosmic nature of the divine, right? And this is why I say we have to discover, we have to become aware, we have to, we have to look, we see. You see, very often I've got this experience. Very often. You look for something that you have mislaid, like my glasses. <laughs> you know, and you look and you look and they're right in front of your nose and you don't see them, you know, until suddenly you say, Oh, they're there, why didn't I see them? You know. And this is if you if you transfer this on your other experiences, you often, you know, how deeply do we dig down to see things in a much you know I mean how a whole development of understanding of what we teach children, you know, you grow in understanding. That means you see more extensively, more widely. People who have had more experience, human experience, life experience, who have traveled more, have had more education, they see things that people who haven't had that don't, you see? So it's this seeing more intensely, seeing more deeply, seeing in a new way. And that's what Teja wants to teach. And this experience of the Christic is just overawing. Now, I have to. Um, I wanted to quote more passages, but I want to continue the story of where the milieu divan fits and how it is continued. I mean, the phenomenon of man is very important. I'm not going to speak about this today here, but I shall say a few things later, if I have the time. But what is very important is that Teilhard, at the end of his life, I mean, he went on writing from 1916 to 1944, in 1954, 1955, till he died. He wrote, he wrote, he wrote, he wrote. Sometimes absolutely enormous number of essays on all sorts of questions. And these essays were thematically uh, put together in 13 volumes, which are his collected works. And only three of those volumes were actually written as books. The others are really all across the, the years. Now, in 1950, five years before he died, he wrote a very important essay, which is an autobiographical, spiritual, uh, spiritual account of his own development, and that is absolutely It's about 90 pages long, and it is in the collection in volume. I think it's volume 12, if I'm not entirely mistaken. In the heart of matter, they have given the the, the essay is called the heart of matter, and the book is called the heart of matter, which makes it very confusing. Because the Heart of Matter is really the key essay, and that wasn't published until about, Teilhard had been dead for almost 30 years. You know. So, and it's the key, it's the absolute key for, his, um, for understanding him, because he describes exactly how he has arrived at this vision. And what he describes there is that he has three dimensions that come together in his view. And that is the cosmic, the understanding of nature, uh, the understanding not just of nature, of the universe, of the whole creation, we might say, the cosmic dimension, which is now much greater, much more in our awareness than it was in Telia's time. That's the cosmic. But you know, he was fascinated by science, by all these findings. But from a human point of view, when he was a young man, he had only been in a very Catholic family, in an aristocratic home. He had been in a boarding school. And then he went into Jesuit uh, you know, communities. He didn't know much about life. He didn't know about other human beings. I mean, he was all the time in a male community. So in the war, he's really thrown into the human milieu. So the second dimension, he discovers the level of the human. What does it mean to be human? Where are we going? Why are there all these people, these different, you know, races, different colours, different cultures? Uh why is there all this? So he talks about the human dimension and he discovers the human dimension in the war because he is, you know, with atheists, with people of, of different faiths of people, all sorts of people. And you know, they're not they're not brought up in a Catholic aristocratic home. They come from anywhere and everywhere. So suddenly he has to uh, quite apart from the onslaught of the First World War, he has to digest the onslaught of human experiences which he never had, you see. So he learns an enormous amount. And the human develops in front of him in, in his inner vision. That's the second dimension. And then, of course, the third dimension, which is the overall embracing dimension, is the divine. Which is there all the time? So you have the cosmic, the human, and the divine. And sometimes this is Teja himself does not use this word, but some uh, of this word maybe I should put it in red um, because it's a lot to do with love also. Wait, oh, wait a minute. Uh, so cosmophandric. I don't. Some of you will know this. But some of you may not. Gosh, my writing is not very good. So Cosmo, that's the cosmo dimension. that's from an for human being, man in Greek. And that is for Theos. So it's God is the, is the middle in terms of embracing everything. Cosmotheandric. It was actually already used by Maximus, the confessor, in the sixth century, I think. So Cosmotheandric is very well known in Greek. Uh, in orthodox uh, thinking. The person who uses it a lot is my, oh, is it, is it working? You can hear me at the back? The person who uses cosmotheandric a lot is uh, the Spanish thinker, and if you like, mystic also, um, Panica. Thank you. Raimon Panica. Raimon Panica. I've just written, I've published a little brochure, which is not here, Teya studies um, it's produced by the American Association, the Cosmotheandric vision of Teya and Panika. This was requested for the expo last year at Milan. Uh, so I did that, and it's very interesting because they have very similar ideas, very, very similar ideas. And quite a lot of Teya's ideas are actually found in Panika. And you know whether this is by influence or by coincidence, I don't know. Uh, I used to know Panika quite well, but I have not met Teya, although I have I have um, interviewed, I was a student, did my research in the 1970s. I interviewed a lot of people who, from his family and from people who had personally known Teya. And that was true of my professor of dogmatic theology at the Catholic Institute in Paris, who had actually been, he was a Belgian Jesuit who had tried very late in Teilhard's life to get some of his, uh, essays published, and the Swiss publisher was going to publish them, and Teilhard was quite excited. I mean, this is documented in a, in a correspondence with his uh, friend, Per Leroy, and uh, he hoped that something would be published, but then the, Jesu- you know, the church authorities wouldn't give the permission, so they couldn't do it. But anyway, Per Henri, who was my teacher, Per Paul Henri, uh, he talked a lot about Teilhard, And uh, he knew what was happening in Paris. I was a student in Paris from 1960 to 63. And uh, when the Vatican uh, issued the Monitum in 1962 that no Catholic seminaries must teach anything on Teilhard, because whatever came out went like wildfire. People all over the world wanted to read it in a translation. You know, and Père Henry would say, can you imagine I came by train from Brussels to Paris? And the douaniers, the, the customs people, what was the man reading? (laughs) Thea, Le Phénomène Humain, The human. I mean, it was this. I have got documentation from, uh, what is it called? The French Literary Journal, quite well, from the time, saying that Thea was more widely read than Jean Paul Sartre at the time. So you can see it was a real bestseller. It was a great thing for about eight, ten years. And uh, what happened is that um, he couldn't publish because the Jesuits. So he only published his scientific works. Occasionally, he could slip in an article here or there in a psychological review or you know something which was not sort of directly offending the church. But most of the things he could not publish, and he was very unhappy about that. But what happened, and this is very interesting, and this happens from the 1930s onwards, he got people or people offered to type his essays and to cyclostyle them. And to distribute them, and this could go up to ten thousand copies at times. So, uh, the leadership was fairly well established in France and mm-hmm. in the USA. And where Teillaud had friends, they would get hold of these texts. You see, so these texts were floating about. And uh, his last superior is a man called um, René Douans, Père René Douains, who was uh, the. Uh, superior at the, at the Etude House, where Teya used to live when he was in Paris. He told me um, in 1975, he said, I kept all these essays in this filing cabinet. I've, you don't expect me to be so stupid. Burn them all. <laughs> I want them all. I want them all. And he wrote two volumes, and they have never been published in English, never translated, called um, Teilhard. Uh, uh, the, the two volumes are called A Prophet of His Time. Teya and the Church, a prophet, no, 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 a prophet on trial, a prophet on procès, a prophet on trial. He saw him as a prophet, but he was on trial, and he says Teilhard de Chardin and his Church. And when you read this, it's like reading a detective novel. You can't believe how many difficulties and problems and, I mean, really, you just absolutely unimaginable. What he documents, and that's a Jesuit, document the life of another Jesuit. Now, what happened when Teilhard was in, uh, visiting in Paris in about 19, must have been 1954. I'm not absolutely sure whether 53 or 54, Jesu- some of his friends said, well, what happened to all your writings? You know, the Jesuits are not going to publish them. What are you going to You must give them to someone. And what he did, you know, there and then, he got a piece of paper with the etude address on top from this study house, and he made over the right to all the writings that were religious writings to Mademoiselle Mortier, Jean Mortier who had been the secretary of the French uh, poet Romain Roland, And uh, therefore stop the publication, you see. So you had this little circle. But what had happened is that several women, last of all, Madame, um, Mademoiselle Mortier, but before there were other women, they photocopied these essays and sent them out. And Mademoiselle Mortier, who had been the secretary of Romain Roland, she had read, she had had a copy of Le, The Divine Milieu in cyclostyle form, it—long it before it was published. This is in the late 30s sometime. And she wanted to meet the author of, the piece of, of this book. So when he was on holiday, not on holiday, but visiting, and gave a lecture, um, she came to him to speak to him after the lecture, and she offered to read on copying to, to distribute his essays. And then she was very clever. When Tayah had died, she, she had formed before that already, when she had the the testament, his will for for the work to be published, she had established a committee of people who were specialists in science and religion, who were fairly eminent, and the president of the whole group was the <coughs> Queen of Belgium, you know, and they immediately started pushing all this stuff into print, but it is not edited, it's not edited with a sufficient annotation or that, so people You know, you start one book and you finish another book and you get quite confused because you don't know where to situate this. So I'm telling you this to give you the background.